Welcome to the Orangutan Podcast. I am your host, Anthony Porter. I'm Gary Shapiro. Journey under the canopy with us and through the woods as we discover the rainforest and its conservation. And welcome, folks, to the Orangutan Podcast. It's been a while, but I am Anthony. And I'm Gary. And today we're talking a little bit more about the Orangutan Republic Foundation and our lovely friends, the Orangutan, in the Southeast Asian rainforests. How's it going today, Gary? It's going great. A little bit of cloud cover outside. We might get some rain. Oh, man. In Southern California, that's like gold. (laughs) Yeah. We just got out of our... our, um... Our drought that was going on for for so long, they declared the drought is over, uh, and I suspect we'll be seeing uh, more rain coming up in the next several months, and uh, it should it should help the aquifers out. God, I hope so. That would be awesome. Yeah, and then uh, I moved from LA up to here in Lake Tahoe, and I people up here just are like, oh yeah, we've got plenty of water. It's great, and it's just such a weird contrast. Um, yeah. I still like see a glass of water. I'm like, all right, I need to drink that or pour it into the plants. But uh, it's a totally different world up here, which is fun. Uh, yeah. Well, wonderful. We are both here with the Orangutan Republic Foundation. And Gary, would you like to talk more on really the uh, background of what the OURF does? Well, I think we've had uh, podcasts before, but I'll kind of go through a little summary. You know, we started the Republic, the Orangutan Republic Education Initiative in 2004. Uh, as a project my wife and I founded. And this was after decades of my being, you know, the vice president of another organization, the Orangutan Foundation International. We wanted to focus uh, with OUR and becoming OURF uh, on education. That's kind of our um, main focus of what we want to do is to educate people about orangutans, about their endangered, critically endangered status and to enroll people to get involved and to care enough about orangutans that we can save them from what could be uh, their demise if we don't take action. And it kind of runs parallel to what's happening with climate change right now and what's happening globally. Things are getting worse and worse. Um, We need to figure out how to turn things around. And so that's kind of the impetus. We wanted to focus on uh, Sumatra to start because, you know, I had worked in in Kalimantan or Indonesian Borneo for so many years. But at the time we started, the orangutans in Sumatra were the only critically endangered orangutan. The Bornean uh, species was endangered. They were having problems. But since Mm -hmm. we started, all orangutans now in the wild are considered critically endangered, including the most recently discovered Tapanulia orangutans, which there's only about 800 up in the highlands of North Sumatra. And they're distinct enough that they were speciated back, I think, in 2019. I was going to say, it was super um, recent. Yeah. Oh, yeah. A lot of interesting things have been happening over the last 10 years. So we, we can go into some of that later. But yeah, just getting back to, you know, starting the Orangutan Republic Foundation, you know, it started as an initiative, and then we got our tax-exempt status as a standalone organization in 2007, and we've been building and building since. You know, we're very small, but we're effective. Uh, We really rely on volunteers. This is one of the, I think, strong points about the organization. You, for example, have been very kind to volunteer your time. So thank you, Anthony. And, you know, we have so many others who have been part of our, our journey 
as we go forward to address uh, issues about orangutans, get people excited about them. And as you know, I, I lived out in Borneo for two years teaching sign language to the ex-captive orangutans that were returning to the wild. And that that really cemented my love for this species and my oh, awesome. uh, conversion to being a conservationist. Beautiful. And on top of that, folks that are listening to this right now love the rainforest or they're interested in the rainforest. They want to learn more about it. Um, so just kind of a broad stroke, uh, folks that are at home that they hear some of these things that happens in the news, like, oh, by the way, all of these orangutans are critically endangered. What are some steps they can take at home just to make sure that they can do their part to help conserve the rainforest? Well, you know, that's kind of what we talk about when we finish a presentation or it's good to get one, get this out front too. So mm -hmm. all these pieces are, are interconnected. You know, what we can do from you know, California or anywhere around the world away from the rainforest is significant. We, you know, we can educate other people, number one. There are a lot of people who don't know about what's happening out in the rainforest, whether it's deforestation or degradation or, um, you know, how orangutans are being treated or uh, a whole host of things that kind of are connected. So just letting other people know about it um, by getting educated yourself, that's like probably the most, that's like the low hanging fruit, but oh, yeah. everybody shops, right? Everybody, you know, spends money and they're buying products and things like, um, well, commodities that are conflict commodities. We should, we should try to understand something about that and maybe purchase products that are going to be as less conflict ridden. You can't be perfect. You know, you don't want to let perfection be the enemy of the good. But at the mm -hmm. same time, we can try to make choices that that will reduce the conflict to the best of our ability. So certified products that are, say, certified sustainable is one way we can kind of go about it. Look, looking at the packaging, understanding it. And I, and I realize it's difficult for people to do that. But at the same time, you know, we've got to be mindful as we go forward as consumers. And, you know, again, this is something we can do. Uh, we don't have to travel across the world and, you know, offer our assistance to conservation groups, for example. We can, we can help them right here by being smart shoppers. How awesome. You know, and then you can also, you can also, let me just continue, support organizations that are already yeah. effectively doing work in the field. So I would say, you know, check out the various groups, including the Orangutan Republic Foundation, um, you know, we really pride ourselves on good governance, and it's something that I really feel important. People, when they invest in another organization, they want to feel good that their their dollars that they're giving are is making a difference. Yeah, absolutely. Um, doing stuff from home is great. I think a lot of times when you see these things on the news and all this stuff that's super far away, you're like, all right, well, what am, what can I do from the other side of the planet? And um, it's really nice to yep. have that up front. Um, I know a lot of times we talk about that towards the end of a podcast, but some folks don't even reach the end. So it'd be great to front load that and see what people can do um, while we're still uh, getting their interest. But uh, awesome. Yeah. All right, Gary, I have a little trivia question for you, and I'm going to see if I can test okay. your knowledge on the rainforest. Are you ready? The biggest flower. I'll do my best. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm getting older, so my memory <laughs> may not be as good as it used to be. Oh, boy. <laughs> Dr. Gary Shapiro, I don't think uh, a lack of knowledge is anything that you have to worry about 
Um, okay, so the largest flower in the world is in Borneo. Can you name what that flower is? Well, I think um, there are two really large flowers mm -hmm. uh, that I know of, and these are um, like sometimes considered corpse flowers. Um, one is Rafflesia, and the other is uh, Amophilus titanum. And oh again, these are two. These are two two large flowers that are found. Uh, I know in Sumatra, and I think some are found in Borneo too. So, um, yeah, these are these are enormous parasitic, in some cases, plants, uh, and they they have a, an enormous flower. Is this the one you're talking about? Gary, you hit the nail on the head. Yeah, yeah. I I don't think this was a softball question at all, but it, yeah, it was a Rafflesia. Is that how you say it? Rafflesia, yeah, named after Raffles, the uh, the British uh, explorer and <laughs> the first guy that took over or established Singapore. And uh, wow. yeah, so it was named in honor of him, Rafflesia. How awesome! Uh, have you? So these are the corpse flowers you're talking about. H have you smelled them before? I have. I've actually encountered them in Sumatra, and uh, yeah, and um, they are amazing. You know, they have a great odor. Well, not a great odor. Great for flies, <laughs> but they can serve very foul-smelling. And mm -hmm. uh, the foul odor is to use, you know, is used to attract, you know, flies and other insects that could pollinate them. Right, and I've heard that like some plants that do have really gross-smelling to us, at least gross-smelling yeah. um, scents. Uh, attracts the the nocturnal pollinators. Do you know if that's correct? It's probably true. I mean, I I'm mm. not an expert with with I'm not a botanist, so I don't really know <laughs> the life cycle of this particular plant. But I didn't answer your question correctly, right? <laughs> yes, you got a plus across the board. And, and, and um, you're probably right. You're probably right. I think you know nocturnal uh, pollinators a very important thing. You know, if some some flowers only open at night. You know, mm, and, and so if that's the case, making their um, their reproductive organs accessible to the pollinators, that's really important if they're going to get fertilized. Going going on track with more of Gary's uh, uh, home base of orangutans, um, something that I learned that was pretty interesting recently is uh, the palmaris longus in our in our hands. We have a lot of us have a third tendon that's in our hand and about 14 percent of folks don't actually have one. Um, a lot of doctors say that there's not a huge um, advantage to having one. Um, and if you look across the ape populations of all the different great apes, whether it's bonobos, gorillas, chimpanzees, humans, we have roughly the same percentage of people that don't have it to have it. But orangutans have 100% across the board. All of them have a palmaris longus. And I'm just trying. I'm right. trying to think. Like, do you think that's because they're the most tree-born and the most hanging constantly that they need the extra tendon? I, I really think that evolution has favored that particular adaptation. That you know that structure in the hand to allow them to grip uh, for long periods, and they have some additional ones. I believe they can actually lock their hands in such a way that. Even if they aren't um, using a lot of energy, they can still hold on wow. uh, at great heights, and and so kind of a, like a locking joint mechanism in their hands. Um, and you can see why this would be adaptive. That if you're an arboreal 
great ape, you know, you've got a lot of mass and you're high up there. If you take a fall, you know, it's it's probably uh, lights out for, for, for many of them. And Gosh, so I mean, how high the tree are they? Have that. Oh, they must be. They're, they're in the trees. Uh, females are almost all the time in the trees. Rarely do they. Yeah, come and the how high up are they? Street. If they if they fall, I mean that's. that's they can tall. be up a uh, hundred feet or more. I mean, you know, Jeez. thirty meters or twenty. Sometimes they come down lower in the in the canopy to you know, uh, forage for low lower hanging fruit. But uh, typically, they're up there in the you know in the canopy and in the uh, you know in, where where the fruits are at the end of the branches so they're up there and some of these trees are very very tall uh as you've seen and it just makes sense for the youngsters as well they have no fear of heights i mean you'll see these little babies clinging by their toes dangling way up there once they get over the fear of leaving their mother and exploring the canopy i mean you're just blown away by by their acrobatics so you know having having that that tendon, extra tendon, is going to is like a safety net for them. Man, I'm seething with jealousy. I would love to be able to yeah. do that with my toes. <laughs> well, you're pretty good, I, man. I've seen you scaling rocks, and uh, you've you've got the, the I think everything you need <laughs> as a human being to do it. But man, um, I love rock climbing. I I think um, I, to be honest, the origin of all of my environmental like outdoor education stuff came from watching planet of the apes and feeling so jealous that I wasn't able to do that stuff. I went to home Depot and bought a bunch of big rope and kept it in my backyard and started swinging from it. And, uh, that like, I was like 12 and, uh, my, my family kind of like ended up culturing that and, and fostering that into a bigger thing. But yeah, it's inspiring. All other apes are the origin of the ninja warrior. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, was watching Planet of the Apes and being in. jealous. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, awesome. So right now, as we're filming this, we are in the middle of Orangutan Caring Week. And so that is an amazing yeah. week, especially for the Orangutan Republic Foundation. Gary, do you want to talk a little bit more on that? Oh, yeah. Just uh, real briefly. I mean, um, this was this is an event that, that I kind of created uh, in 2004, 2005, around then, awesome. when the Orangutan Republic started. we I had originally started Orangutan Awareness Week when I was with the Orangutan Foundation. We had started that a number of years before. And it just, you know, I was talking to some Indonesians that I knew, and it, it became clear that becoming aware of orangutans wasn't enough. We actually have to convert awareness to caring. We gotta, mm. you know, because people are aware of a lot of stuff, but they don't. They go, yeah, I know about it, and they just move on. But how do you get people, especially in Indonesia, to care enough to do to take action and to, you know, again, it's almost like being mindful. You know, not just recognizing it, but but actually recalling it, and then going forward and taking action that shows that. What you know, which you, what you're aware of, you can now take to the next level, and that is, you know, with your heart, caring enough about the species to take action and do something. And so that's that was kind of the origin of it. And we've had themes every year. Uh, this year, the theme is um, AI in conservation and to leveraging, say, that technology, because as you know, um, AI is becoming a very prominent part of our lives. Oh, totally. So whether it's 
you know, it's integrated in, in the economy now. It's behind the scenes frequently, but, you know, it can also be used in, in conservation and, you know, by taking large sets of data and um, using algorithms and learning, you know, models to help discern what is in the, in the forest. Is it a cicaded or is it a chainsaw? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we're seeing how that's been employed. And so this year, you know, because of how chat GPT has become a big, big deal and everybody knows now about AI and we're, we're, we're concerned about the downside, but here's something we can be, you know, clear that there's an upside if we can leverage it to help us in our conservation efforts, because that's sometimes the landscapes that we're working with are so large. That, you know, you just can't use boots on the ground everywhere. So if we can use eyes in the sky and then crunch the numbers using AI, we'll get a better picture of what's happening on the ground. That's incredible. So that's, that's kind of our theme this year. And so, you know, we're encouraging, you know, different organizations that are both orangutan related and conservation related to be part of it. So people should go to orangutancaringweek.org, just like it sounds. And you can put that along the bottom here in post-production and people can click on see what's happening, man, and then see what's happened in the past. So we have volunteers who are helping with that. Um, and clearly, you know, we, we've got to do more and we got to care more as a, as a species for orangutans. And, you know, and again, as I mentioned before, uh, and I've said before many times, orangutans are an umbrella species. So if we take care of orangutans, we're taking care of other organisms that are less charismatic, just like those those flies that are pollinating Rafflesia. You know, people wouldn't <laughs> spend a dollar to, to save those those flies, but you know what? They're important in the life cycle of that of that flower and that plant. So, you know, if we can keep the rainforests intact using orangutans as our umbrella species, then we are saving you know, other species as well. And, and of course, the rainforest itself. And I was at an Orangutan Republic gala maybe two years ago, and I was sitting next to Topher White, who is uh, yep. the owner of the Rainforest Connection. And so they use AI and, and their setup yep. is fantastic. I love that they, they use recycled phones to um, they, and they put AI on recycled phones and use those as monitors. And they put solar panels up in trees and use it as a 24-7 bioacoustic monitoring station and they install them across the planet. Um, so yeah, to your point, it's, really AI, I, it's incredible. Yeah. yeah. So not only can we use it for biology and figuring out bioacoustics of what animals are in the area, but like you said, if a chainsaw or a gunshot is being used like or going off, it we we know within seconds, which is just groundbreaking. Yeah, and then you inform the local authorities, and they are then able to take action um, while the um, perpetrators are still doing their dirty deeds. If you can get them out there on motorcycles and intervene, you have a chance to stop further destruction and maybe even arrest somebody. But it's uh, that's probably the hardest part is the social aspects of conservation, because while we can look from the sky or listen in the forest for these things and come up with, you know, highly probable uh, answers to our questions, getting, getting the people on the ground to confront uh, other people is, is really challenging. And then certain mm -hmm. cultures, they have a, uh, 
they're they're not inclined to do that. You know, there's a kind of an inhibition to challenge somebody who's of authority, for example, uh, to let them know you're breaking the law. Or, you know, this is why the police need to be brought in, uh, the force police or whatever uh, enforcement organization is is in that local area. So, yeah, I mean, you know, from a scientific standpoint, this is helping us better understand um, the acoustic. Uh, diversity of a forest, and that can give you an idea of its health as well. Because if all you're hearing are the sounds of, you know, insects at night, but you're not hearing the sounds of of hornbills during the day, or you know, uh, orangutans calling, long calls, or some of the other, you know, loud mammals and birds, you you may have a forest that's not as healthy, and you know, this is this is also important information. I love that. Yeah. Well, well put. Yeah. So, Orangutan Karen Week is going through. I didn't. I didn't know that you were the creator of Orangutan Karen Week. That is. That is really awesome. Um, that is going well, this week. I don't week. like to talk about it, but yeah. I mean, this was something we we started as one of our first initiatives once we created the Orangutan Republic and we went over to Indonesia. We actually got the government of Indonesia, the, the legislature. Um, and uh, the Minister of Forestry at the time, we, we had a big <laughs> unveiling uh, in, at, the, at the Parliament building, and we invited other organizations to come in and to set up their own uh, booths and to give out information about their, their organization. So it was really a, an opportunity to bring together conservation groups and to enroll the government and then to get into the press. And so for that whole week, we had a lot of coverage uh, about Orangutan Caring Week. Uh, in Jakarta. And that was really exciting. How awesome. And remind folks of when the orangutan Karen week goes until? Well, it changes every year. We we kind okay. of, you know, use a little Ouija board and we try to figure out. <laughs> it's typically like the second full week of November, you know, from Sunday to Saturday. So we we try to let people know in advance. And then we have a website and we have volunteers like uh, my good friend Holly Drayluck, she's been doing this with me for over, over a de almost two decades, probably. And so, you know, being able to build upon the successes of the previous years and to bring in more organizations, which are listed on the website, um, that's helpful in, in kind of amplifying and multiplying our, our effectiveness. So, again, it's up to people locally to do what they want to do. There's, you know, like we're doing this podcast right now. You know, that's kind of one of an activity, uh, yeah. but, you know, there's there's all kinds of things. We have a contest that we're now evaluating the AI generated artwork. Um, <laughs> and, you know, last year we did we did an art contest that uh, said no to AI. We said we wanted people just to. Yeah. So that was like one like, of the first times that I heard it. about it, too, was when you were saying you're like, hey, by the way, don't use AI. I'm like, who is going to use AI in art? And that is such a yeah. dated expression just from a year ago. How crazy. Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, there there are some programs out there that you give it a prompt and it'll generate some amazing artwork. And of course, we're still trying to figure out, it's still a wild west when it comes to, you know, AI and, and yeah. you know, uh, IP issues, you know, who owns it. Um, and so attribution is really important, being able to say, yeah, Dolly 3, help me make this image you know so it's not just you know saying i did it but it's really you got to give credit to the algorithm and and i think that's important interesting 
Um, well, very nice. And then November is also a pretty special time of the year for nonprofits. Uh, going into Orangutan Karen Week uh, ramps us up into uh, the Big Giving Tuesday. And so a lot of folks, uh, if you don't know this about nonprofits, a majority of the funding for nonprofits comes during this time of the giving season. Um, and it's, it's super important to really see where, hey, maybe I don't need a whole uh, hoverboard today. I, I could just donate <laughs> some, some bucks to, to a great nonprofit that's doing work around the planet. So this is one of those nonprofits and feel free to check us out at orangutanrepublic.org and you can find all of our information on there. Uh, awesome. Yeah. Great. Shameless yeah. plug. It's our podcast. We can do whatever we want. <laughs> all right, Gary, are you ready for trivia question number two? I am. Okay. Um, this is more of a round number, so uh, it's going to be up to you. But how many species of mammals have been discovered in Borneo? Oh, wow. It's going to be well, more of a guess. You're, you're I, really I don't expect that. you to know the exact number. <laughs> how many species of mammals in Borneo? I, I would have to say it's, it's probably uh, maybe in the hundreds, I would have to think. But. So Borneo was thought to be home to 222 mammals. And oh, well, yeah. Are these, are these mammals that are endemic to Borneo? In other so words, that found is my next there? question. There, uh, there's a, a portion of that which is endemic, which is only found in the area. So can you guess how many mammals of those 222 are only found in Borneo? Uh, I would probably say something like, Maybe 50 to 100? God, Gary, you are so on par. Uh, it's 44 uh, are endemic oh, okay, and found specifically end. in Borneo. Yeah, but okay. I, can't, I can't trip you up. Okay. Um, no, okay, no, all right. No, no, Since... no, no. Here's the problem, Anthony. A lot of these numbers are not like set in stone. That's and fair. To find, yeah. you know, there's probably a few that have not been discovered yet. And, you know, it's like, the population of orangutans. We don't know exactly how many there are because they don't go to census booths every 10 years and, you know, raise their hand or sign a form. We've got to figure that out, which is something that's going to be happening very, very soon, by the way. That's um, exciting. The scientists who are out there, the researchers need to get out and, and start gathering that information for the next uh, PHVA, population and ha habitat and viability analysis, which is a big word or you know, big term to talk about what, how many orangutans are there? What, you know, where are they found? What are the threats facing them? And then they do these uh, vortex models, these, this kind of a modeling of if you like reduce this population in a certain way, or you, you increase hunting at a certain rate, how mm -hmm. long will it take for this population to go to extinction? Mm -hmm. And so they run these, these simulations. Uh, over and over again, and they come up with some averages that will make it, you know, you, us understand as, as a conservation managers, what we need to do in a certain, what they call a meta population, a small population to ensure the viability. Because sometimes there's only a, a hundred animals in one area. And if, if there's like fewer than a 200 or 250 uh, in an area that's much more prone to extinction than if there was a thousand animals there. 
as you can see that, you know, there's more genetic variability, there's more individuals still there. Uh, and, and so the smaller you fragment the metapopulation, the greater the chance for that metapopulation to twinkle out of existence. And so wow. it, it's, it's, it's complicated. You know, people say, how many orangutans are there? And they, they'll say, oh, well, you know, you can say 100,000, right? And that's kind of where we're, we're at. Uh, we, we're, but it's plus or minus, you know, maybe 20%. We, we don't really Man. know for sure until we do the surveys. And even those surveys are fraught with error. So uh, we've got to just be okay holding these, these various numbers in our heads, realizing that no matter what number we choose, they're still critically endangered. And it's because of all the things that are affecting them. Uh, and, you know, we could talk more about that as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I, uh, there's a book, Song of the Dodo, that kind of explains, uh, I haven't finished it because it's huge and the audiobook is super long, but uh, they're basically talking about what is the minimum number of population before we consider like something a lost cause for, for population right. um, conservation. And it is not a straight answer. I mean, they just wrote an entire book around one question. So um, depends on the species. A lot of genetic variation doesn't matter in like some smaller animals. Um, but when it comes to something as complex and intellectual and as cultural, you know, as an orangutan, it's, it's a, yeah. probably a multidimensional question. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I hope I answered your question. Okay. About endemic animals. Yeah. Yeah. Well, animals. You, you said, you said 50 and then you went and then you recanted you're like 50 to a hundred, but then it was 44. So bingo. Yeah. All right. Um, since we're on that trivia train, I'm going to do one more for you. All right. Borneo is twice the size of what European country? Wow. What European country? Um, Western Europe or Eastern Europe? Uh, let's do West. Uh, possibly, I'm thinking Holland or Germany. Ding, ding, ding. Did you cheat? Did you, did you write this webpage that I got these questions from? Yeah, you're totally right. No, Borneo no, is no, twice the size. Borneo was twice the size of Germany. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Uh, again, I, I I didn't look at the question. I'm just <laughs> thinking a little bit of uh, geography, uh, trying to like match what what it might be in those latitudes to on the equator. I, I do know that Borneo and um, is about the size of Texas and Oklahoma. If you oh, look really? at its size, yeah, wow, that might be an and easier kind of. Uh, it's the third biggest island at. on the planet. Is that right? Yeah, third largest on the planet, you know, and you've got you got New Guinea and then you've got Greenland. That's bigger. Yeah. But it's well, also the only country, it's the only island, uh, Anthony, that has three government entities that that are administering it. You've got Indonesia, of course, Kalimantan, mm -hmm. the southern two thirds of it. You've got Malaysia, which has Sabah to the north. And Sarawak to the to the northwest, and then nestled between Sarawak and Sabah is the Sultanate of Brunei. Right. Yeah. And, and Brunei is only is, on Borneo, you know, right? Brunei isn't anywhere else. Only on Borneo. No other no wow, other yeah. island has has three uh, 
government uh, municipalities that are that are uh, controlling it. Would you say that makes yeah. conservation more difficult or open for more conversation with three different organizations or three different governments running one island? I, I don't think it really makes that much difference because uh, I think all of them are very uh, interested in conservation there. I think they're, most of these governments are, are very keen to protect this island. In fact, mm -hmm. you know, they, they created this kind of consortium called the, the Heart of Borneo back in, I think, 2016. And it's, uh, they realized that the, um, the, the area in the center of the island, which intersects with all three countries you know that these are this is like the headland the, the the watershed origin for the river systems of the island which are so important and so yeah they work together and um you know they meet from time to time and you know there are all kinds of um organizations that are also kind of interacting with uh the governments on a number of conservation projects so yeah i i don't think it's a big big problem having three governments. It's such a, it's such a large island. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I got to tell you, I think there's some really good stories coming out. The fact that Malaysia and Indonesia are the, the two outstanding countries have reduced their deforestation rates over the past five or so years uh, in, in contrast to the rest of the globe, particularly in the tropics, where deforestation uh, is continues. It's not, we're not going to meet our our goals of 2030, according to WWF, at the current rate. But um, at least Malaysia and Indonesia are doing a much better job of reducing deforestation. I want to put that plug out there for, yeah. for the, the two countries because, you know, sometimes governments get a bad rap and, yeah. you know, they should be called out, you know, from time to time when things aren't working well. But if something is going well in the right direction, we should pat them on the back. I love it. And what what do you think is the uh, the difference? Why do you think um, Malaysia and Indonesia have have kind of more pushed towards the uh, the more ethical end of uh, curbing deforestation? What's been the difference? Do you think? I think there's been a lot of attention on them prior you know, prior to that, and mm -hmm. the current uh, governments, um, particularly in Indonesia, I can speak about uh, the minister minister. Uh, of forestry, she's been very, um, uh, very firm, and you know, and the president's um, also put a moratorium on uh, creating new palm oil plantations. For example, that was happening for a while, and they've they've done some changes in um, the the whole structure of of concessions. You know, where companies can come in and uh, manage large tracts of land for extended periods of time. They've kind of rebooted that and they've slowed the process down in such a way that companies could not go in and, and do the deforesting, <laughs> you know. So yeah. it's been kind of, I think, a, uh, a, a consequence of some of the changes in, in the laws of, of Indonesia. And it's mm -hmm. worked, uh, I think, to the betterment at this point. It remains to be seen how that's going to change in the years to come because there's a new presidential election next year. We don't know whether the policies will continue. So it's important just to understand that um, in the case of Indonesia, we, we just have to keep monitoring and you know, providing uh, good and, I think, useful uh, feedback uh, to government officials when it's appropriate. 
in the case of Malaysia, they've, they've been managing their forests in a very professional way. In fact, uh, it's, it's done by corporations. They have a very corporate mindset when it comes to many of the government ministries. And so um, they're looking, of course, for the bottom line. They want to make sure there's sustainability in their uh, product, whatever they're dealing with. In the case of wood, they want to make sure those trees are going to be there for a long time. And so much of the destruction that happened in the 70s, you don't see that today. Um, mm. And yet there's still conflicts going on, particularly with um, ethnic issues, uh, customary land rights. Those, those continue to be perplexing uh, for both Malaysia and in Indonesia on the island of Borneo. So there's, uh, there's always good stories to come out. You hear about the government finally giving, say, a, um, a tribe or a, a community their rights to the forest again. And after years and years of protesting and, and, and asking the courts to rule in their favor, so you'll see, see that coming up from time to time. And yet there's still problems with, um, you know, prior consent to go in and, and do uh, some kind of project in their land, whether it's a plantation or some mine or whatever it is. So, you know, there is that dynamic, this interplay between the local communities and the government. And this will continue to play out, I'm sure. So, um, yeah, it's very dynamic out there in that regard. And it's important to realize that there's no panacea for conservation. It's really just continuing to do the work and to see what's happening. Mm -hmm. So if I might just mention something that is a bit disturbing. Uh, there was a recent um, report that came out of um, Australia, Queensland University. There was a graduate student who did uh, a research project on the killings on Borneo because the killings of orangutans on the island of Borneo. And they, she went out and uh, I guess with a professional team of surveyors to talk to villagers about whether or not any, any of them or they know of any killings that took place in the last five to 10 years. Because prior to that, there was a report that was published that indicated 100,000 orangutans were killed in a 15-year period from Whoa. like 1999 to, you know, onward. And so this reduced it from probably around 200,000. We didn't know there were that many orangutans if you backtrack. But wow. at that point, when this, this report came out, um, I think in 2019 or so, or 18, 17 maybe, um, there, there was, it was like staggering that 100,000 orangutans had been killed and most of them are out outside of protected areas because, you know, places like national parks and, and uh, protected uh, forests, um, orangutans don't respect the boundaries. So they, may, they might wander out into uh, orchards and into people's um, villages yeah. or, you yeah. know, they encounter them. And so, you know, there was, there was significant uh, killing going on. And this, this latest report, you know, despite the efforts of conservationists in the area, they made the um, conclusion that it hasn't had much of an effect. And so this is really kind of a, a, a very difficult thing for us to talk about. And I think it, it, it's one of the reasons why caring, the orangutan caring aspects, in other words, getting people not to be just aware that yeah. they're, they're endangered or critically endangered, or it's just not enough to be aware that it's illegal to kill them, we have to actually 
work with local people and change their hearts and their minds at a, at a more profound level. And so the, I, I really feel it's important that these conservation efforts that have already taken place uh, continue with, with more emphasis on finding solutions to local problems. Because if you're in a village, for example, where the people are not getting enough protein, you could understand why, say, somebody who didn't have a taboo on eating primates might hunt an orangutan. Yeah, to get, to absolutely. Get and, mm-hmm. you know, and, and this is what happens. Um, but the study, the study was interesting. It didn't look at the killing rate. It only, it only looked at the presence of killing in these, like, I believe 79 villages. And they talked to over 400, um, respondents to their survey. And Mm -hmm. they, they realized that 30% of the villages still had respondents who had known about killings that had taken place within the last five to 10 years. So, again, it was subsequent to the other study that showed 100,000 had been lost. Yeah. It just suggests that killings are still continuing and more attention has to be given to this, uh, especially if we want orangutans to have a, uh, a viable future because even, even the killings of 1% of the population has a profound impact on the trajectory of that population they only breed once every you know eight years or so on the average so having one individual one baby every eight years you know and it's it's higher in sumatra but it's you know seven to eight on borneo this this has profound impacts on the population dynamics man and i mean when it comes to folks that do end up hunting out there and and killing orangutans and, and primates the I mean, the answer to that, like what, what folks can do is, is just through education, right? I mean, enhance yeah, education. I, I think it's, you've got to up it. You just can't just go into a village and, and give one lesson and say, you, you know, check that off the list. I think Good organizations point. have to invest more time and find out what are the needs of these villages. This is what we're doing in Sumatra, by the way. Oh, and awesome. In Sumatra, orangutans were critically endangered many years ago. Um, you know, there's like maybe 14,000, 13 something, uh, of the Pongo Ebali, the, 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 the Sumatran orangutan, like I mentioned about 800 Pongo Tapanuli, the Tapanuli orangutans, which are facing their own issues. But the mm. ones up in the North in, uh, the looser ecosystem and certainly the ones that we're dealing with in looser national park to the South, these are orangutans that will occasionally wander out of their protected areas and go into uh, farmland and orchards in the buffer zone around the park. And so we're working to, yeah, yeah. I mean, if there's not enough fruit in the forest, they're going to take a chance. Uh, If you're a mother and uh, with a baby, you're going to, you're going to poke your head out of that, that that canopy and maybe come to the ground or change into trees that are in the buffer area. So part mm-hmm. of what we're doing is we're working with local people uh, in in some of these high conflict areas to uh, provide alternatives uh, to for the orangutans, like planting more fruit trees in the in the area near the park. It oh, takes wonderful. time for these trees to grow. Uh, we're also working and and investing in these communities by 
finding out what they what they need to um, protect their livestock, for example, and we're helping them construct tiger-proof enclosures because tigers are an issue there. So yeah, if we wow. can partner with the local people, they're going to believe in what we're saying. They're going to they're going to trust us, and and ideally take good care of the orangutans and the forest in general, uh, particularly the the national park, which is protected. So this is the funny thing is that since the days of the Dutch, it's been illegal to own, to kill, to torture, to bother orangutans. They're protected wow. on paper. But wow. even after Indonesian independence, those laws were still there and they've been enhanced by the Indonesian government over the years. At the same time, we're still seeing orangutans being killed, even though it's against the law. So there's a disconnect between what you know, what laws are out there and what people are doing locally because their stomachs are empty or they need to get money to put their, you know, put something on the table or to get medicine. Um, they're trying to survive the local people. So we have to understand what their needs are. And this is what they have to do in Borneo, too. I really believe that's one of the shortcomings of some of these conservation efforts so far is there hasn't been enough effort to partner with these villages. And they only did a sampling. This study that was just mentioned, I just mentioned, may underestimate the level of killing. Wow. Um, and so it's really important that we do a better job of working with the local people and assessing orangutan populations. Fantastic. Yeah. I mean, longstanding engagement with, with folks. I mean, coming from a marketing guy background, I know that the three steps and getting anybody to invest in anything is first is the awareness. Second is the consideration. Yeah. So changing that verbiage, right? Even from just orangutan awareness week to orangutan caring week gets you to the second step. And then the third step is conversion to get them to actually invest, not just monetarily, but just through time and their energy into something. So we're on the right track. Keep moving forward, I guess, right? Absolutely. And again, Caring Week is just a week, right? We have to be caring throughout the year. And I think this is where the uh, the nonprofits are really important because they've got programs in the field that are operating 24-7. And it's really important that people understand that and invest in the long-term future of, of orangutans, rainforests, which, again, if we look at it, these are part of the respiratory system of the planet. We, we used to talk about the lungs of the earth. You know, the oceans are the real lungs of the earth. I mean, there's so much oxygen being created in the oceans, which, which are also yeah. being threatened. But rainforests are the other part. And so we've got to, you know, make sure that our future is, is insured um, ecologically. And we don't have to go into some of the other issues that are affecting the planet today, you know. Um, <laughs> we've got all the to pick from. Frankly, yeah. you know, this is this is something we all can do, and we can do it. I think with an open heart, and with the feeling that we can make a difference for our future generations. That's really important. I love that, and I personally think that is a fantastic way to end this episode. Looking forward in the future, we've got our problems, but by golly, we're going to fix them. <laughs> yep. <laughs> All right, Gary, thank you so much for being on with us. And for all you folks at home, feel free to visit the orangutanrepublic.org 
And feel free to donate during Orangutan Caring Week and during our Giving Tuesday campaign going on until November 28th. Have a great rest of your day, everybody. And thank you so much for listening to our episode. Thanks a lot. Good to be here.